Over the past few years, growth of digital platforms that mediate work has only been exponential to say the least. Consequently, there has also been a very apparent growth in the number of workers signing up on these platforms. What goes largely unnoticed is the conditions under which these platforms operate. Today on Technology Together, we have with us two people who have worked extensively on deconstructing the platform economy in general and the state of platform labor within the Indian context. Joining us today are Dr. Balaji Parthasarathy, a professor at IIIT Bangalore and the lead investigator for the Fair Work Project in India, and Pradyumna Taduri, an indispensable part of Fair Work Foundation's efforts on the ground in India and an alumnus of the MSc in Digital Society program at IIIT Bangalore. Towards the end of 2020, our guests, with a team of few others, put together a report called Fair Work India Ratings 2020. Labor Standards in the Platform Economy. This garnered a huge reaction from workers, customers, Twitter, news outlets and some platforms themselves. What we hope to uncover through the course of this episode is their understanding of the ground realities surrounding platform work, how they arrived at certain fundamental principles to assess what counts as fair work, especially given the variables at play in India, and what this could mean for all the parties involved in the long run. It's so good to have you here with us. Without further ado, let's get right to it. Hi, I'm Swati, your host for today's episode of Technology Together, a podcast from IIIT Bangalore that nurtures pluralistic conversations on how digital technologies can work better for a complex society with diverse needs. Both of you have been acquainted with platform labor for a long time now. What has happened is that platform economy has come under critical scholarly scrutiny in the recent past. So could you walk us through how you decided what aspects of it you wanted to engage with and how did they materialize? The platform economy, as we know it today, the digital platform economy has grown only over the last decade or so, but it has grown very rapidly especially in terms of the work opportunities it has provided. And by estimates that we've sort of made at IIITB, in the absence of any central data repository, either on a number of digital platforms or the number of workers who are uh, engaged with those platforms or on the revenues that these platforms generate, we estimate that about 5 million plus workers are actually involved in working for these uh, platforms. Now, let's put that in context. If you take, for instance, what has really been the poster child of the Indian economy over the last 30, 35 years, it's really been the software industry, which today exports about $150 billion plus dollars of software every year. The software industry, however, for the 35 plus years it's been in existence. Today, I think using NASCOM figures, we'd say it probably employs about four to four and a half million people. Of course, there is a whole uh, factor in terms of, you know, the kind of number of indirect jobs it generates, whether it's for things like security services or other kinds of less skilled services. It has a sort of a multiplicative factor. But nevertheless, the sort of the direct employment that it has given us certainly less billion. So when you put that in context, the work opportunities in the platform economy have grown very st- significantly and steeply. There's another aspect to it, which is that if you look at the number of people who are joining the labor force every year in our country, okay, most of them are struggling to find enough opportunities. So not only 
is labor market characterized by a high degree of informality. There's also significant underemployment and unemployment in the country. And clearly the uh, platform economy is providing opportunities for these workers. But there's another side to that, which is that although we acknowledge the opportunity providing workers in terms of sort of ability to earn and so on, the conditions under which these workers are expected to perform their tasks is far from acceptable, whether it's in terms of the wages they get paid, the hours that they work, the risks that they have to bear, and so on. There are significant asymmetries between these large, well-funded platforms and an atomized workforce that is unable to bargain or articulate some of these challenges and issues that it faces. So that's another reason for the scrutiny. And so part of the intellectual agenda and also sort of an activist agenda, if you might, is to see how is it that we can, through our research, try and hold up a mirror to platforms, to workers, to regulators, to consumers, to see how can conditions change. On one hand, we don't want to throw the baby with the bathwater, right? So we want to say, look, yes, platforms must grow. We'd like to see them blossom. But the status quo cannot continue. So how can you bring about changes? So we're not only doing scholarly work, we're also trying to bring about some of these changes. To quote Marx, the philosophers have only interpreted the world, and we don't want to stop at interpretation. We also want to change it. That was very comprehensively put. Currently, you're both working on the Fair Work Project. So could you walk us through Fair Work Project in general and your work specifically? So the Fair Work Project is uh, centered around the Oxford Internet Institute in Oxford University. Sort of modeled on, it seeks inspiration from fair trade. And what the Fair Work Project has done is to generate a set of principles, fair work principles, that it applies to two forms of platform work. One is what you call geographically tethered platform work, which is services that are provided locally, whether it's for ride hailing, food delivery, domestic services, and so on and so forth. The other is what's called cloud work, where you deliver services to distance customers, clients, and so on. And uh, you use the internet to do so with platforms in both cases performing the role of intermediaries. In both cases, the question that arises is what are the terms and conditions that uh, lead to the engagement of workers for the customers? What is the role of the platform, right? So this is what sort of the Fair Work Project attempts to do, unravel, and to identify some of the practices that are acceptable and simply not acceptable. Sort of lays down certain thresholds. Now, these thresholds are not uniform because the project is actually being conducted in about, right now, you know, it started originally in about two or three countries, South Africa, India, and then it grew to Germany, the UK. Now it's about in 20 countries. So what we're trying to do is to look at the application of these principles in different contexts. So although we may use the term platform economies, and you know, many of these platforms you know, are spread across the world, such as the Ubers and so on, they also sort of conceal a significant amount of diversity. Why? Because there's a lot of specificity that, that is sort of unique to different regions. Specificity influenced by the local laws, because the minimum wage in Bangalore is not the minimum wage in Birmingham or in Berlin, right? That is just one example. 
Then there are specificities in terms of how consumers behave, even within India. Even platforms will uh, tell us that you know customers and consumers in cities like Bangalore and Chennai are very different from the customers in places like Delhi or in Chandigarh. So we're looking at how the sort of diversity of practices can provide us lessons from across the world to collectively enhance the conditions for workers. We acknowledge diversity, but then what we want is an advancement in the standards that workers are offered and work opportunities. So we are hoping to sort of do this for mutual learning and sharing of ideas, etc., while continuously respecting the diversity of conditions in which these things happen. So that's what the Fair Work Project is really about. And in India, IIITB has been the principal investigator. I'm the PI for the project. Janaki Srinivasan is the co-investigator. And we also have on our team, Prajimna and Monica are uh, alumni who serve as researchers and they do some outstanding ethnographic and field work for this project. And uh, a lot of that actually comes from their own training at IIITB. So that's what we do. We are now heading this project in India. We did it in Bangalore in year one. We were supposed to roll it out in Mumbai and in Delhi for year two, but the pandemic intervened, unfortunately. So we had to stop there. And we even wanted to roll out to Hyderabad and Chennai in year three. Hopefully this year, we will also go to at least one other city, possibly Delhi. But we'll see what circumstances allow us to do and to permit. The other thing is when we do these studies, we are actually looking at a, a variety of platforms. We looked at about 12 platforms last year in various sectors. Like I said, ride hailing, food delivery, logistics companies, domestic service companies who provide services like beauticians or services of plumbers, carpenters, electricians, etc. And we're also looking to expand into other sectors. So the Fair Work Project then looks at how these sort of various sectors in various uh, parts of the world work to provide different kinds of opportunities for workers. And at IIITB so far, most of our work or almost all of our work has been only dealing with geographically tethered uh, platform work. We have not yet ventured into cloud-based work, but hopefully we'll be able to do it in the time to come. So that's the kind of work we're doing at the Institute for the Fair Work Project. So drawing from what you said about the various diversities at play, obviously your work involves great amount of uncovering the ground realities of things. So how do you then arrive at the core principles of fair work that were detailed in the report? Those conditions or those principles were arrived at through a consultative process that involved platforms, involved labor unions and representatives, involved labor organizations such as the ILO. Everybody, you know, there were meetings held in many parts of the world. To my knowledge, there were meetings in Geneva where the ILO is headquartered. There were meetings in, uh, I think, in Berlin, in the UK, in, in Cape Town and Joburg in South Africa. And in 2018, we also had meetings in uh, Ahmedabad in India. And we hosted a round of consultative meeting in July of 2018 in Bangalore at IIITB2. So all these sort of inputs provided the basis for the favor principles. Over time, the principles have also evolved because we've learned how certain principles are effective in getting the kind of answers or getting the kind of inputs and insights we need to help better worker conditions. And as a result, the principles and the attendant thresholds that come with them have uh, changed over time. 
So, Pratima, you, of course, engage with the workers directly. And could you tell us more about these four principles of fair work that have been laid out and how they play out on the ground when the workers are involved? What is the reality of it? So, yeah, there are uh, five pillars to fair work. You have fair pay, which for the workers are the most important. You have fair conditions, which are equally important in terms of setting your conditions right. Uh, you have fair contracts, which is what are the terms and conditions look like? And is it equitable to both parties? Uh, you have fair management, which looks into different sort of communication channels to see if there is due process when it comes to taking steps, disciplinary actions against workers. And then you have fair representation, which is to ensure that there is that worker voice does feed into what the platforms are doing. So each of these five principles uh, have two thresholds. Now, these thresholds are specifically designed for understanding platform work, and it's sort of uh, based on the larger fair work network of researchers who, who come together to set these thresholds. And what we do in each fair work country is that we contextualize these thresholds into a set of questions for workers and platform management. So these then set the benchmark for our uh, study. Let's focus on fair pay, first one you mentioned. Um, so when you consider fair pay, how do you determine what counts as fair? And do you find that these platform workers are being paid fairly? So I think there are two characteristics about platform work that we need to that we need to understand. And then uh, before we discuss fairness in pay. So, so the first one is a peace rate system of pay, right? So a peace rate system on its own, you know, it goes back to the birth of you know, factory work and even beyond. So what happens is you get paid uh, for a fixed rate. You get paid a fixed rate for every piece that you produce. And that makes a more a sense in a factory where you have relative predictability predictability on let's say the incoming raw material and the size of the workforce who then churn out a set of outputs but if you look at piecework in um, in the context of a platform work what happens is that the nature of this work is very much on demand so what that means is that there's always a sort of a mismatch between demand and supply meaning that what happens is that you know, workers can be logged into an app, they are ready to work, but they're waiting because there's either lesser work or an oversupply of workers. And so when you're waiting, you're not producing output. And in a piece rate system, what that means is essentially you're not getting paid anything for waiting. So that's one aspect. And the way we apply this aspect into our fairness principle thresholds are that we make sure that rather than looking at it as pieces, we look at this work as a time-based system. So states in India have several minimum wage laws. So we select an appropriate minimum wage and then that would tell us, so for one day of work or for one week of work, what is the state mandated uh, minimum wage that a worker needs to be making. And that's what we use as a benchmark. And so what we're doing in this process is we're, we're trying to sort of take into account the fact that idle time of workers need to be considered as part of work. So that's one aspect. Now, the second aspect of platform work is this notion of using asset-light models. So, 
So platform companies, you know, they tend to label workers as independent contractors and they present them with an opportunity of micro-entrepreneurship. So as part of that approach, what platforms are doing is that they're pushing the costs and risks associated with this work onto the workers. So basically platform companies, typically they don't tend to own physical assets, they go asset light. So things like the car, a bike, smartphone that you need, fuel, you know, maintenance, insurance, and any other sort of sort of contingency costs that you're going to face along the way are all kind of pushed to the workers. So in the principles, we take this into account. And so the second threshold in fair pay, we also make sure that it's not just that to see if workers are earning the minimum wage, we, we see that workers are earning the minimum wage after factoring these costs. And sometimes these can be quite substantial. So we studied 11 platforms. What we found last year in 2020 was that there was sufficient evidence that workers on eight platforms met the first condition, which is that they were able to meet the minimum wage. And when it comes to the second condition, we found only four of those eight platforms were able to demonstrate that not only are workers being paid the minimum wage, but it's also after factoring in the cost. So basically what we're seeing here is that while the states have set minimum wages, it looks like on the ground and given this system of platform work that has the on-demand element to it, the asset light element to it, the piece rate element to it, these combine in ways in which it looks like uh, workers are not able to meet uh, the minimum wage standard itself. There seems to be this very gray area when it comes to responsibility adopted by the platforms themselves. So how do the workers feel about something like this? So I think there has been since 2017 we've been seeing an increasing number of pushback. So workers do organize, they do conduct strikes, and they've made their voice clear, in, especially uh, you know the larger platforms like Ola and Uber. It's clear that workers do feel that they're not able to make ends meet. Part of that has to do with an oversupply of workers. Part of that has to do with the platforms themselves slowly sort of reducing the incentives and other benefits that they're providing workers. So there has been a clear sort of growing discontent. What about worker safety and working condition when it comes to platform work? Since there is no one workplace, it's all very spatially ambiguous, at least the kind of work that you've been looking at right now. What are some aspects in which safety and fair work conditions come into play? So our focus has been on geographically tethered platforms, meaning that the service that a worker provides would be at the customer's location. And if you look at the sort of platforms that have a lot of workforce, so basically the 11 platforms we study, uh, what we find is a lot of those platforms are in the urban logistics and the transportation platforms. And what we see here is that road safety is really paramount given the number of workers in the transportation sector. So, you know, if you look at something like the Ministry of Road Transport and Highways, if you look at their data, you see that in 2018, some 1, 1.5 lakh motorists lost their life. So we do know that the transport sector itself comes with a lot of risks. And uh, you're absolutely right to say that uh, when it comes to workplaces, you know, given that this is sort of very much not in a factory or not in a fixed or confines of four walls, 
environments that the sort of ability to you know have control over the environments become harder but what we also find is that as platforms while they say that they are marketplaces to bring user groups together we also see that platforms are at the center of this marketplace and that they do have control or at least substantial influence over the user groups and how they interact so you are at the situation where you have you know the transportation sector comes with its inherent risk and then you have platforms that might sort of structure their pay in such a way that you know you're doing 150 kilometers a day you're doing over 12 hours you're logged into the platform waiting for work you're out on the street and so the, the question is what are platform do platforms doing to you know counter this and sort of mitigate risks and you can think of things like say crash helmets or or high visibility jackets for bike riders or comprehensive insurance when uh, when things do go wrong so those are some of the things that we look for and we also feel things that platforms can do things like rest facilities or parking spaces right so basic things that you would expect basic facilities from a workplace i think uh, things platforms can leverage their existing networks and you know create such spaces for workers in multiple locations and also with covid we saw that at some point during last year many categories of platform workers became essential workers and the pandemic is still going on so it's also a question of what are they doing to sort of mitigate the exposure to the virus and sort of what are the training protocols in place and should workers contract the virus what are the sort of steps that the platform is doing to sort of help them recover so these are some of the dimensions in which uh, we're thinking of fair uh, conditions so this your work in general i mean the scale that's in question is massive so what methods do you adopt to go about this research well so as far as our uh, methods for our fair work project is concerned we have three uh, sources of inputs that feed into our overall uh, analysis each year so we draw on any kind of material in the public domain this can be something that platform companies would have put out this can be scholarly work about platform workers in india this can be several of the news articles that are sort of quite common these days uh, so these help us sort of understand uh, the situation especially understand it at sort of the far ends of the country uh, so that's one strand and the second strand is worker interviews and so here what we're looking for is not really a representative sample what we want is a set of experiences from a diverse set of workers and so we interview workers we do semi structured interviews with workers on each of these platforms and that really helps us understand their experiences understand the policies that companies might have what does it look like on the ground and you know is it sort of and is the implementation sort of you know does it cover all the aspects that it should so finally what we do is we uh, engage with platforms so platforms that choose to engage with us so we have meetings with them on a regular basis now so the the last point is particularly important as professor balaji mentioned the, the fairwork project is an action research project it's an intervention and so the idea is that we strongly believe 
that platform companies are an immediate pathway to change. So there are changes that platforms can make that can immediately affect outcomes for workers. We've seen this uh, very clearly last year during the height of the lockdown and the pandemic when there was a lot of uncertainty. Platforms did take measures, whereas the outcomes of the measures remain to be seen, we did see that platforms were quick to mobilize. So we do see that there is potential here. Uh, and this is at least you know one of several approaches to bring about change to workers' condition. And so if you look at our report and what happened last year, through our interactions with one company, Urban Company, which is a home service provider, the company agreed to make changes to their terms and conditions to sort of make them accessible in multiple languages. The company also decided to add an anti-discrimination clause within the customer's terms and conditions, which essentially prohibited customers on the platform from discriminating against workers. So we are seeing small changes here as well. So um, how does your training as a student play out right now, uh, now that you're a researcher? About my work at ReplyDB, you know, my interest has been in understanding work and technology. So new forms of work and uh, the digitization of uh, aspects of work. And so digital labor platforms have, have been on the list, on top of the list for me. And as part of my MSc in Digital Society course, I did my thesis, you know, looking at digital labor platforms. And I was really interested uh, in understanding how is it that work is organized on these platforms. What are the ways in which the relations of production have been reproduced? And what does the day-to-day experience look like? So for instance, when your Malik or when your boss is an app, how would you negotiate with an app? So that's what I have been interested in. And so as part of my thesis, I used, you know, methods of participant observation, where I you know, briefly work on a food delivery platform, and I spend time at hangout spots where that workers frequent and spend a lot of time. And, you know, I used other methods of, of interviews and so on to collect data and understand these questions around organization. So some of my fieldwork data I've also used in collaboration with, uh, uh, with Professor Janaki to create a text-based adventure game. So the game is called The Giggling. So you can just go to thegiggling.com and play it yourselves. So the idea here was to kind of highlight some of the challenges and the sort of decisions that food delivery riders need to make. And we wanted to sort of let players experience what it's like to work on an app firsthand. Now, coming to the the program itself, so just to give a little bit of context. So before the Digital Society program, I was working as a web developer for several years. And uh, as a developer, you know, I was applying web solutions you know, for various use cases. And I was always interested in sort of understanding how do I not locate this problem that I have in front of me from a tech forward or a tech first perspective. And this course really allowed me to do that, to look at the context in which tech is embedded. So when I joined, to me, I th- there were really no programs that sort of on offer in India that sort of gave you these several vantage points to or dimensions to of inquiry into information technology. So in that sense, this was very unique program. So and it combines a lot of topics from you have your HCI, which is from a 
design practitioner point of view, you understand uh, a larger history of development and where ICTs come in. You look at you know, things like policy, uh, telecom policy, and you, know, you look at, uh, uh, there's a lot of focus on research. So there are several research methods, courses you can take to develop your research craft. And you know, you're free to take uh, you know, reading electives and uh, project electives as well to sort of focus on you know, a particular topic that you might like, you know, e-governance or online education, so on, and you focus on those. So yeah, I mean, for me, it was, there were these several vantage points and that really allowed me to, you know, pivot towards research. And so I've been working on the favorite project since I graduated in 2019. Be it both of your current research or Pradyumna, your research as a student, how do you see the platform companies or the workers responding to your research? The platforms at first were, let's say, almost dismissive of some of the things we did. In the first year that we did the study, we had two platforms that were even willing to talk to us because as part of our methodology, you know, we do some background secondary research, looking at everything from newspaper articles to scholarly work. And then based on that, we develop certain hypotheses or a sense of how is it that we're going to plunge into the field, developing the instruments, etc both for the workers and for the platforms. But as far as the platforms are concerned, like I said, the the welcome wasn't particularly great. And in the first year, we had two of them who were willing to speak to us. The second year, it became four. Okay. In the third year that we are sort of undertaking now, the number has gone up to eight. And I think grudgingly or otherwise, the platforms have come to accept that this study has a certain legitimacy because we also got a fair amount of press last year. And I think another aspect which has been very important is that we are independent researchers, right? We're not allied with the platforms. We're not allied with the workers or the trade unions, although we are keen on seeing their conditions improve. We're not speaking on behalf of regulators. We are an independent group of researchers and our job is to hold up a mirror, like I mentioned earlier. We are also not passing judgments on platforms about other things that they may be doing well or doing not so well. So it's not a sort of a sweeping indictment, nor are we saying that the platform should shut down by any sense. In fact, what we're actually saying is we are as much allies of the platforms as the workers because we want the platforms to grow, we want them to do well, employ workers, but under different conditions. And that is critical. And based on our work last year, I think more platforms have sort of reached out on their own to us and said, look, we're willing to work with you. We see sense in some of these practices. And there are a couple of interesting uh, anecdotes that I'll share with you, which tells you how much there's been a change in attitude. I think it was one platform who actually approached us independently and said, look, we like your method. Why don't you do some independent or studies for us for, for internal review purposes? We, of course, declined to do that because there'd be obvious conflict of interest. But more interestingly, another platform that we spoke to after our second year's results were announced initially took a rather sort of offensive approach, sense, or they went on the offense at least, and said, how could you give us a score like this? We do everything that you say is necessary for a, a worker-friendly platform and so on and so forth. But gradually they cooled on. But finally, what was interesting was they said, we think we'll work with you for at least one reason. We pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to consultants to do this kind of work. You're giving it to us free. You're telling us in an independent, unbiased fashion what it is that we need to do. We'll be happy to work with you. So we've seen a significant change in attitude in the platforms, uh, at least you know, in their uh, openness to talk to us. 
What it means in terms of change in behavior, we'll only have to wait and see. As far as workers are concerned, we are trying to reach out to more of them. We are trying to, we are having our uh, findings translated, for example, into Canada. We are reaching out to more unions through which uh, we can uh, spread the word. And we are trying to expand our reach into worker groups so that they become aware of the conditions that different platforms offer. And because you have an atomized workforce, it's a lot harder. These platforms are more centralized agencies. So you can, you know, once one or two doors open, you know, you're talking to the platform. The same is not the case with the workers. You've had two iterations of evaluating and scoring. What's next? Okay. More iterations will follow. (laughs) Okay. Because this is not a one-off or like, you know, just uh, an effort for a couple of years. Rather, we want to try and see it done year on year. Why? Because we want to also sort of push the boundaries of what is possible in in many ways. One is to, like I said, our principles and the thresholds that are required to meet those principles are also evolving, right? So we want to make sure that the benefits that accrue to workers keep up with changing social norms and expectations of various kinds. That's one. And also platforms are also given the sort of the possibility of changing their ways, changing their operations, changing how they sort of conduct their business and how they sort of deal with workers. And it's not possible, as we'll acknowledge, for these entities to sort of change their behavior overnight. On the other hand, if you do this over a period of time, it gives them a sort of a roadmap. It gives them a sort of a way to sort of think about it and bring about changes, if not immediately, maybe in the next year or two. And then they can see these sort of improvements. And then the idea is also to share these practices with other platforms and other sectors and other parts of the world and say, look, they're doing this. Why can't you try something like that? If not identically, something similar that will change your behavior and will change the, how you engage with workers. So what we really want is this sort of, we are trying to do is this multi-year study. Definitely year three and year four are on. We are hoping also to get support for years five and six and maybe for the years beyond that. So to answer your question, it's not going to stop at year three, but we hope to continue for a few more years ahead at least. And after that, who knows? You know, It's hard to tell. So yeah, so that's the answer to your question. Lastly, um, do you see a role for regulation or any kind of policy intervention from the government for platforms in general? Yeah, I mean, there is a definite essential role for regulation. There's no two ways about it. And part of the reason why the relationship between labor and capital in the platform economy is the way it is, is because you're operating in a more or less regulatory vacuum. I think there's perhaps been some recognition of that in the government and in the new Code of Social Security, platform workers have been mentioned for the first time as a work category. How it all plays out, we don't know. But having said that, I think, Government regulation is absolutely critical. It's a necessary but not sufficient step. Why? Because if you have regulations that only lay out certain minimum threshold, it might become easy for platforms to just stick off, do the absolute minimum, and then say, we've done our bit, end of the story. So we have got to set these floors below which they will not fall, while at the same time ensuring and encouraging them to keep doing better than that. Now, that will vary also by sector. So, see, the government is also not omniscient, right, in that it's, it's not going to be able to sort of, shall we say, write down the rules and guidelines for every sector to the last detail. No. So, it will set about some broad regulations within which 
you're going to have interpretations and sectoral variations, geographical variations, and so on, that will have to be factored in. To begin with, even in India, I know labor is in the concurrent section of the constitution, it is the concurrent list. So, which means that while the government of India can pass certain legislation with all good intent, how it actually gets implemented depends on the states. So, government regulation is important at the national level. We've done that, or we're trying to do that. We need to see how it gets refracted at the state level and then gets implemented by the bureaucracy at the ground level. Because there's legislation, there's rules, state level, central level, and its implementation. So, we have to sort of see regulation as an absolutely necessary condition to ensure that people are aware or to at least prevent a race to the bottom in terms of worker standards. But in order to create a virtuous cycle of improvement in worker standards or employment standards, I think more than just regulation is uh, going to be critical. And let me also add something that I probably should have mentioned earlier about uh, new steps that we're taking. See, when we say, for instance, that we need regulation, We also need other kinds of pressures that are brought to bear on the platforms in order to change how they conduct themselves with their workers. So what we're trying to do is also to sort of galvanize public opinion by getting consumers, especially large consumers, to to become aware of the kind of platforms that they're actually using to deliver various kinds of services. And we're trying to see some of them will sign a pledge and saying, unless you perform reasonably well on the Fair Work scorecard, we will not be using their services. So it's important for other kinds of social pressures. And even say workers themselves, once they are aware of how different platforms may behave, as indicated by the diversity in the scores that platforms have, then the fact that workers might prefer to work for one platform over another itself puts certain kinds of pressures in the platform economy where most platforms experience high degrees of turnover. So sharing our findings with workers, trying to work with enlightened customers and consumers is all as much part and parcel of the effort to change how the platform economy works as legislation is. That was a much needed comprehensive set of answers from both of you that I think leaves us all enough room to reflect about our own roles in all of this. Thank you so much for bringing us up to speed on what many of us are unfortunately unaware of. Good luck with these plans. We would love to keep hearing from you about how they've panned out. For all those listening in, Check out the full report, Fair Work India Ratings 2020, Labor Standards in the Platform Economy, linked in the description. You can find a link to the game that Pradyumna spoke about in the description of the episode as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. This is Swati signing off and we'll be back soon with another episode exploring how we can shape the vision of technology together.